0: Welcome all you optimistic opossums to another episode of A Little Greener, your podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. We talk about all things from backyard wildlife to global conservation issues to ways that we can live a little more environmentally friendly in our day-to-day lives. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here with Casey. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Casey?
1: Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, It's I'm ready for fall. We talked about the the last week. I think the weather sort of like chilled out for a second, but it's back to being kind of hot and humid where I'm at. So I'm ready. Like pumpkins are around that you can start to see the leaves changing just a little, and it's still hot. So so I'm ready for it to cool off.
0: It's like that here as well. Well, (laughs) it is uh, lovely to see your face again, as always. Uh, And listeners, thanks so much for joining us again for another week. If this is your first time joining us for an episode, um, Casey and I are friends. We're we're former coworkers. We worked in environmental education together. um, And so we just have a mutual passion and interest for trying to to live our lives a little greener. And so we're hoping to share that with all of you and build a little community here. So we're happy to have you. Um, At the end of our episodes, we usually try to have a little bit of a call to action, just different ideas for things that you can do that are related to whatever the subject was that we talked about that day. So our last episode, we talked about being a little greener on vacation, which was a terribly timed episode on my part. But but we talked about some things that you could do on all sort of levels of your vacation planning to when you're actually out on the road. And one of the things that we talked about is how to be environmentally friendly in where you're staying. And that can be a challenge for staying at hotels that sometimes feels like a pretty wasteful thing. So we talked about With a lot of things uh, in terms of vacation planning, you just have to do some homework and research your locations, research what they're doing to be environmentally friendly. So that was our challenge, was to look up a place that you stay or maybe that you want to stay and see what their sustainability policies are. Casey, did you get this one done? And you you had a very busy... Week, I know the past week, so did you get to this one or not so much? I
1: did. I, uh, if you look at you go, (laughs) I'm so Uh, impressed with you. If you listen to last week's episode, I talked about how when I was a kid, we stayed at a Hilton hotel for a family reunion when I was five, and it was like the fanciest experience I had had up to that point in my short life, and so I decided to look at Hilton's company and they are a really huge hospitality company that operates worldwide. Uh, so I read there's like, basically it's sustainability and social impact report. It's called something different, but a lot of times companies will lump together both sustainability as well as like social responsibility and even diversity and inclusion and things like that. And, um, first of all, I will say, whoever made this report this is a little extra. <laughs> like all of their graphs were like measured in hotels almost, you know, like like that was if you've ever seen a pictograph with like you know, of a, a happy face representing something or like a an four and a half horses or yeah. whatever. Yeah, this was like oh, two thirds of a hotel means that we are on track to meet our goals or whatever. <laughs> so it's very like pictograph heavy. And I will say that it was also. Like they have a lot of targets in place for 2030, which is interesting. It's one of those goals. That's like, Oh, it's less than 10 years away, but also like you could also like, there's a lot of progress. They want to be reducing things by like 50%, like 50% of their energy, um, use 50% of their water use a bunch of their food waste. They want to cut down. So they seem to have ambitious goals. It wasn't super, super specific in Mm -hmm. how they were tackling them. And with, a company like that. That's so big that has like a diverse portfolio of assets. Basically. It does seem like it's, they did like little profiles on different places. Um, but they talked about adding solar to their grids. It was interesting. they were working with wild world wildlife foundation. So they actually like mapped their hotels against species range on okay. the IUCN red list and, um, and climate things. A lot of it was like, we have identified places, which seems, Fairly easy if you like are into GIS, but I will say the most interesting thing I found in there is that they have a soap recycling program. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a pretty robust soap recycling program, Where if you leave soap in their hotels at your room, we talked about like those little tiny samples of things. They will actually send it to a soap processing center, sanitize it, which seems redundant, but important. (laughs) And then they actually will hand it out in places where there's a need for sanitation infrastructure. So I thought that was really interesting. Like you don't think about recycling soap, but it can be done. It is being done.
0: Yes. Yeah, it is being done. And I think maybe more commonly at some hotels too. So that's awesome. I'm, I'm impressed. Can I say what you did this past week or what happened? Yeah, go for it. So Casey had surgery. If you've been following the podcast uh, and her finger injury, she got surgery this past week. So I was Casey, I was prepared to give you a clean pass uh, if you had not thought about hotel sustainability <laughs> for in the past week, um, but look at you go and probably did, did a more thorough job of it than I did, but I did also look up some of the hotels that I've stayed in and my, my first choice tends to be, I'll do like a, the comfort in or the sleep in, which is the same choice hotels is the name of the company that, that has those hotels and some other ones as well. And they have this room to be green, uh, is what their program is called. And, you know, there were some things about it that I liked There were some things about it I didn't like. They have a number of like facets that they are focusing on energy conservation, water conservation, recycling and waste reduction, employee engagement, which I think is a good piece that gets forgotten about sometimes, and then smart, safe, and sustainable product usage are their sort of categories, and then they have their properties divided into level one, level two, or level three within this program. So level one is basically like we talked about last week, the bare minimum sort of thing. So this is required though for all of their hotels to do, which is nice that they have replaced incandescent bulbs with more environmentally friendly options. Their linen reuse program, of course, and they also have to have a green leader. So an employee uh, that is assigned as a green leader, they don't really specify what that does, but they have to have somebody in place at all properties that is I sp- supposed to be kind of in charge and aware of these things, I would assume. And then they provide a recycling option for guests. And they've, so they say that all of their properties, so this is quality and comfort and sleep in, Clarion mainstay suites, suburban extended stay. Ascend Hotel Collection and Cambria Hotels and Suites. Uh, They've replaced their Styrofoam cups and bowls with more sustainable alternatives, which to me, yes, those things should be done pretty much at all properties. So that's their level one. And then they do have sort of, I guess, optional, uh, or I hopefully they're pushing properties towards these levels, uh, but a level two and a level three uh, that are starting uh, to go more in depth. Though, So things like Energy Star, water and energy consumption, like tracking and managing specifically, like we just talked about having. Having a soap recycling program and things like that fall under their level two. And then for level three, those are things like using renewable energy resources. So looking at solar, wind options. Uh, looking at lead certification, which we talked a little bit about last week. They don't have to be lead certified, but some in this category are pursuing lead certification. So doing those larger, more infrastructure changes. So. I, I like that. I, I like that they have these different options and talk about what they are. It did say on there that you should be able to see when you look up a property, what level they're at. Now, I just looked up one real quick and I, I didn't. See it. So I don't know if that's something that they're still working on, or if that's something that because I was looking at it on a mobile device, maybe it's not there yet. Uh, if you go online, you can see it. So, um, so that's what I discovered. So I am going to keep an eye out for those level one, level two, level threes, see if I can find some level two or level three places to stay. Uh, I was originally going to do some compare and contrast with some other hotels, but that's where I'm at so far.
1: Uh, great job on doing your uh, assignment. You too. We're, yeah. We're, we're supporting. If you guys did your assignment too, let us know. We want to congratulate you on that. I feel like for some of these things, I, I'm a little cynical when it comes to company goals. Yeah. Because a, like Coca Cola is a really good example of someone who's like constantly being like, in 15 years, everything's going to be different. And if you like look back, In the next five years, they just move the (laughs) goalposts like like a little further. I would love to see more people be like, you know what? In the next five years, I'm going to do this, this, and this. It's easier to follow up on. And there's certain things that like, there's no reason to wait. Right. Like a certain amount of transitioning your energy source to like solar power. That's, that's maybe a longer term sort of situation. Right, there's
0: things that's going to take time and money and budgeting and planning and all, right. and all of that, but
1: but there's a certain amount of like food waste practices, yeah. um, single-use plastics that there's no reason to take 10 years. Yeah. Like set a goal to cut it by 30% in the next five years and then cut it in addition, you know, there's, I'd like to see those shorter, more aggressive timelines because I and, think that allows them to get away with things. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's, what's good about what you did to Casey in terms of looking up the actual report. I didn't look up the actual sustainability reports, but that's also a good thing that you can do to keep an eye, eye on companies for sure is to make sure that that's not what they're doing. Uh, they're just kind of saying all of these things because, that they think that's what people want to hear and then not following up with it so yeah being able to find the actual sustainability report and seeing what they're saying is important too uh one thing i did one other thing i did want to just give credit to choice hotels for real fast was they did also talk about their headquarters uh that their their headquarters facility is actually a platinum lead certified building which we talked about last week is can be a, a there are some really good standards there for achieving that highest level of lead certification. So good on them. Good job. Yeah. Doing that. It's nice to see finding those lead certified actual hotels (laughs) to stay in is still going to be pretty rare these days. So, but it's nice to see that they've at least done
1: it at the very top. So awesome. Sarah, you had something to share with us about a prize, right?
0: Yeah. I did come across some environmental news today and we've talked before on this podcast about the importance of holding on to hope and finding optimism in what can sometimes seem like a very dreary environmental outlook (laughs) that we're living in. And so one of the things that I saw today was about the Earthshot Prize, which you may or may not be familiar with. It is one of Prince William's Projects, I think it's obviously involves a lot of other uh, people, but it's something that he kind of uh, heads up. And so I saw they put an announcement out today that they named their finalists for the Earthshot Prize. And so, just a real quick background this is re- you can just go to earthshotprize.org and look this up. But uh, the name Earthshot comes from uh, JFK's moonshot to so kind of, you know, that kind of brought everybody together to, to put man on the moon. Basically. We love so- a moonshot
1: <laughs> metaphor.
0: So, <laughs> so that's where earth shot comes from. And so they are basically awarding people who are making huge efforts to protect the planet and they have it divided up into categories. So they have three finalists in each of these categories. So there's a category for, protect and restore nature, clean our air, revive our oceans, build a waste-free world, and fix our climate. <laughs> Those are the target areas that they've talked about. And I've, I haven't read through all of the finalists yet, but I just read through a couple and there are some really cool ones. Some of them are groups. One of them is a 14-year-old girl from India who developed like a solar-powered ironing machine now that she wants to produce more at large and try to help cut down on. Um, So I guess these are typically run by charcoal which is harmful to the environment and human health. So she's developed this solar powered cart instead. So I thought that was really cool. Food waste. We talked about food waste on this podcast as well. I read one of the finalists in Building a Waste-Free World is the City of Milan Food Waste Hubs. That they have, I guess, three different hubs across the city where they're basically collecting food from grocery stores and also company like cafeterias and things like that, leftover food. And they are giving it to non-governmental organizations who distribute it to people in need. So sweet. Just lots of cool stuff that you can read about. So I think the Earth Earthshot Prize is a neat initiative and I just found a lot of hope in reading through some of the finalists today. So again, the website is just earthshotprize.org. You can follow them on social media as well. So find find some happy news today.
1: Yes. Infuse yourself with po- uh, positivity. I do want to apologize for our audio. We are aware that our connection's not not 100% great and we're going to do our best, but probably until I have my own home and an ethernet cord. We're going to struggle a little bit with that, but I hope that you'll stick with us through this, even though I might occasionally cut out here. I'm really excited about today's topic, which is, I mean, I'm always excited about recording, but like, we're going to talk about cars. I'm not a cars person, but I was really excited doing research for this. So I'm hoping that everyone finds some new interesting point or learn something during this um but sarah my first question for you is what was your first car
0: this is very much not environmentally friendly and also just
1: you had goes, a hummer. To,
0: goes to show not a hummer but it <laughs> goes to show you what a lucky person i am uh, my first car was a mustang I got, yeah. And I, I loved it so much. It was, I think I can't even remember anymore, which was extra terrible. I think it was technically my graduate, like my high school graduation gift from my parents. I got it before graduation, but I think I got it during my senior year, basically for my birthday of senior year. And it was for my graduation. And I loved that car, man. It was a great car. I was so lucky did you to have name it. it. Uh, somebody else named it, not a super creative name, Manny who's Manny, the Mustang, the black Mustang. Uh, and I drove that thing into the
1: ground.
0: <laughs> so uh, I'm sure, you know, not a fuel efficient car or anything like that, but it was, it did very, very well for me. I'm trying to think, I think it was 13 years or 14 years or something like that, that I drove that car for. So it lasted me well into adulthood. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it was, it was a great, great car. A lot of good memories associated with it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sarah, your assignment for this week is one to get us a picture of you with your, your Mustang. Done. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The social media will love it. (laughs) Uh, my first car was a Scion TC, <laughs> which I don't know, uh, what that is. yeah, exactly. It was one of those cars that just had two doors, and so there's a back seat, but you had to kind of like climb over the front seats to flop mm-hmm. into the back seat. Um, and I got it for graduating college, really like practicality reasons. I really yeah. needed something to drive myself around, and so that means I got it in like 2015. And it was tragically murdered in 2017 or 18. Uh, uh, it was, it was an older car. It was like 2004. So it had lived a life prior to me getting it, but I actually got totaled in an accident um, a couple years ago and i really liked the car like when you're driving to philly you have to have some get up and go in your car in order to take advantage of to be as an aggressive driver as literally everyone else around you is <laughs> and so this car was very useful in that way it also had a sunroof which made me very happy cuz that was like like something i never had before that made me feel super fancy yeah but our next section is actually going to be about our current cars right we're going to review those sarah and i have Very similar cars. (laughs) So thanks for sharing. Um, we'll ask all of you guys what your first car was and stick around and we will, uh, see you in our review.
0: Welcome back, everybody. We'll get started with our review for today. Casey, so are we going to just sort of joint review this then?
1: I'll let you start. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
0: So as Casey said, today's episode is all about cars and we want to talk about our cars. Casey and I both drive Priuses as maybe you could have guessed. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about what it is like switching over to a Prius, which is a hybrid vehicle. So we're going to be talking about different kinds of cars tonight. And so the Prius is your sort of standard hybrid vehicle. And or I did
1: you try and go get a Prius was that like your intention or yes, or were you like open to any hybrids or
0: I knew so here's the deal so I told you about my first car that was also a used car when I got it so this thing I think my first car was a 98 was the model and I drove it I think until 2014 so <laughs> that car got the life God, uh, yeah, yeah. out of it and then I bought my next vehicle I had thought about getting a hybrid at that time but I wasn't able to find something that was in my price range that w- I knew I was going to get a used one. That, that, like, the ones that I would have been able to afford already seemed o- older to me than I would want them to be. Um, so I decided to just get another standard car then, but knowing that the next time I got a car, I was going to want to get something that was more uh, eco-friendly. And then as fate would have it, my, that car that I bought uh, got totaled right after I finished paying it off, which was kind of terrible. Uh, But then yes, so I had sort of made the commitment mentally already that even though it was way sooner than anticipated that I was gonna go for a hybrid. And so I did some research into it and my mom had already, she was driving a Prius at the time. That was a change that she had specifically made in in order to be more environmentally friendly, which was amazing uh, of her. Um, and so I'd driven her car and I knew that I liked it and was comfortable with the vehicle and everything. And it still seemed like the Prius at that time was sort of the, the gold standard for st- standard hybrid vehicles that, in my price range. So I was pretty confident uh, that that's what I was going to go for. And I was somewhat limited as to what was available in the used car market around me at the time too. But I already had some experience that, like I said, I'd already driven it and I knew that I liked it. Um, And I think one of the things, at least for me, that I'd heard about driving a hybrid car before getting it was, you know, people talking about how they're so much less powerful and, you know, joking about not being able to accelerate to get on the interstate or, or whatever. And I don't know if when the Prius first came out, if something like that was more of an issue. What I can say from switching over is for me, there was no difference. <laughs> there is no difference in the the way that I felt like I could accelerate. I mean, I'm not out there drag racing. Uh, in a normal driving day, getting on the interstate, whatever, you know, somebody makes me mad and I need to accelerate really quickly around them. I can do those things just fine uh, in the Prius. It's not a problem. What I've determined is, is the cause of this is that one of the things I really like about a Prius and probably lots of other cars have this now, but I like that it shows you your consumption basically. Like as you're driving, it's got this little screen with this sort of real-time window that's telling you your miles per gallon or whatever that you're getting at the moment. And so I play a game with myself Every time I drive in the car to try to keep that as high as possible to keep my miles to the gallon as high as possible. And one of the ways that you can do that is by being more cautious when you're accelerating and decelerating and maintaining your speed appropriately and all of that. So I'm, I'm convinced that that's how the Prius got this reputation is because all the drivers are just like low-key watching there. Yeah. Trying to make their miles per gallon as high as possible. But I like that that exists. I like that feature. There's, you know, the thing about hybrid vehicles, and we'll talk more about this in the, in the main discussion, but they, because they do still, they are still gas powered. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to like worry or plan more, you know, for, in in terms of, of your driving. So I found the Prius to be Other than, of course, the cost investment that you do have to prepare for, but there, you know, those that's getting better as time goes on as well. And if you are willing to get one that's a few years older, uh, you can, you know, might be able to find something in, in your price range. But other than the cost investment, I feel it's a very easy switch to move over from a traditional engine to a hybrid vehicle. So I really enjoy my Prius.
1: You, so I got my Prius uh, it's a 2014 Prius after my car also got totaled. And I, I'd always like when the Prius first came out, it came out in like this light blue. And I was like, Oh, that's what I want. But what was available was a silver one. And that's fine too. Um, there's lots of, I was always against getting like a silver car because I feel like all silver cars look basically the same in a parking (laughs) lot. And I kind of wanted it to stand out a little bit more. Um, if you know me personally, you know, that getting my Prius itself was horrible. I had a horrible experience. Lots of uh, specifically women have terrible experiences buying cars. And I feel very much like I was taken advantage of during the course of it, but I wanted that Prius. Yeah. Um, Andrew's brother's a mechanic and he had recommended that Toyota tends to be a reliable brand yeah. and was, wasn't going to um, be broken as much and that they had better kind of electrical systems than some of the other brands that were foraying into hybrids because I went to a Ford dealer and they tried to get me into a Ford hybrid. I'm sure they're fine, but this is the advice I got. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found online that a lot of people who did buy hy- or buy Priuses, Rebought a Prius after mm-hmm. they, their Prius yeah. ended up uh, going kaput. I will say I do notice a difference in acceleration compared to my old car. Now, there is a row of buttons that I have never touched on my Prius. <laughs> and the one that we're in right now, I think, is like eco mode. And then there's another one that's like EV and another one that's power mode. And Andrew wants to push that button so badly. Power mode, I think, is probably <laughs> what would end up like sending the acceleration into, and I don't know if it's because like it would rely more on gasoline or what it means, but I just envisioned my Prius turning into a transformer and like, (laughs) that's not what it does at all, but I'm afraid to push it. So, so, um, Uh, you should probably look it up
0: in your manual. I I don't have those buttons. I don't, that's,
1: huh? Yeah. I had to look up something else. I mean, like I was confused about a couple things because there's certain things like my I have a power push button and a push to park button and you're like, a lot of things are different from the 2004 vehicle that I had, but it is so quiet. That is something I love about my Prius. It is like, Andrew will always be like, is it on? Did it, did it turn on? Yeah. Well, so
0: here's the thing then that's a good point. It to be aware of if you're gonna do this, because some you can you can sort of feel the engine shutting off sometimes. Like so sometimes it'll be running on the traditional engine and you can feel that, and then when it's got power, like it it you feel that shut off. The car is still running, but you can just feel that engine shut off, and it is very quiet. So first you just have to know that that's normal, <laughs> like that's what the car is supposed to do, and that can be weird if you've never been in one before. And it is nice how quiet it is. I forget to turn it yes. off sometimes it has happened
1: to me because
0: you push <laughs> it the yells button. at you. Yes. It does yell at you once you get out of the car, but, uh, but yeah, cause you push the button to park and then you push the button to turn it off. And because it's so quiet, I have multiple times gotten out of the car and been very confused as to why it started yelling at me. <laughs> because I left it on. And also I have had this before too, where like, especially in parking lots, if I'm driving through a parking lot, I think that people don't notice that you're behind them because the car is so quiet. So like people walking down the middle of the lane and you're like, gosh, people get out of the way. And then I'm like, oh, they can't, they don't know there's a car behind them. So that has
1: actually been a proposed like Rule change. I don't know if it's in Europe or the U S but they propose no. that for electric vehicles. Cause there's a similar issue with that for safety reasons. Oh. So people can hear them coming. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk a little more about that, but uh, personally, I will not go back if in, as long as I'm in the financial position yeah. to have another hybrid, I will not go back to in- a straight internal combustion. People. Agree.
0: So right now I'm at like an average of 55.5 5 yeah. miles per gallon. And I mean, I've, I've at least halved the amount that I have to go to the gas station. So I think th- those, that's, that's the big positive. I, my mom's had hers for a lot longer than I've had mine and she's not had any major issues. Um, so yeah, I'm two thumbs up for my Prius for sure.
1: I will say one of the unexpected costs in having a Prius if you live in Indiana is, is that Indiana penalizes you basically. Go backwards. I, it's it's upsetting. I had to look it up. But basically yeah. like in so in Pennsylvania, like registering for your license plates like 35 bucks or whatever. And then the way they get your monies is because there's state inspections. Um in Indiana there's no state inspection, which seems wildly irresponsible, but <laughs> but you have to pay a lot higher for your vehicle registration. And it's based on like your model year and all of that. But if you have a hybrid, you have to pay a $50 hybrid fee. Yep. And it- it's because they say you're avoiding gas taxes, yep. which you are, but, but am I avoiding $50 of gas fees? Like that's two full things of gas. And, and also it's just the opposite
0: of what we need to be doing, which right. we can, this is officially the longest review section yes. <laughs> ever maybe, but yes, that is an important cost to, or yeah, thing to think about depending on what state you live in for sure. But Casey, shall we shall we call that the review and let's call the review. We'll talk more about this in our main discussion. The whole experience. Everybody, (laughs) thanks for listening.
1: All right. Hello, and welcome back to more cars. Hi, (laughs) This is the main discussion. We're going to talk today all about the environmental impact of cars and really actually more of the future of cars, because I think that's a really interesting conversation. So we actually aren't going to talk about all the environmental impacts of cars, but Sarah, to start off this conversation, what are some environmental impacts of cars?
0: Well, I think probably the one, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing the ones that we're not going to talk so much about tonight would include things like the manufacturing, right? So where we, we get these materials to make these bit, cars, yeah. the, the actual piecing together of these materials the end life of cars as well, you know, what, what did, where does, where does automobile waste go? (laughs) Where, where do our, where do our poor cars that were totaled, where do all those parts wind up? Uh, So things like that, but then the big thing, and the reason that we got our hybrid cars and and all of that is, of course, the fossil fuel consumption. So like we've talked about with many things before, these cars You burn fossil fuels, that's what you do to make them run. The burning of fossil fuels, of course, uh, releasing those greenhouse gases into the environment. So they have uh, an impact on climate change. They have an impact on human health in terms of air quality and pollution and that sort of thing as well.
1: Yeah, some other things that we've talked about actually in the past, driving our cars impacts wildlife habitats. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can look at our episode called Wildlife and Roads, which I really loved that episode. So if you're looking for another good one, that's a good one to think about. our driving's impact on wildlife. There's also runoff from like our tires degrading and things like that. That's another thing we're not really gonna cover today, but we are basically gonna talk about cars and climate change. And so uh the vast majority of cars on the road have an internal combustion engine. Um, so they rely on fossil fuels, like Sarah said. And by relying on fossil fuels, emit. Uh, emissions into the atmosphere, lots of greenhouse gases. Emissions from tailpipes were first identified as a source of air pollution contributing to smog over Los Angeles in the 1950s, but the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970 gave basically the government leeway to be able to regulate what's actually coming out of your tailpipe. So nowadays we're mostly having carbon dioxide come out of our tailpipe, but also we have nitrous oxide and there are some hydrofluorocarbons coming out, um, via like your air conditioner and things like that as well. Um, the clean air act required a 90% reduction in certain emissions by 1975. So like, uh, we were really impacting air quality back then, even more than we were now. And there's kind of two standards that we often talk about. We're talking about fuel emissions, but also fuel efficiency standards are another way that the government has really regulated how efficient our cars are and and how much we're polluting per mile. And one thing I found interesting in researching this is that fuel efficiency standards did not come about because of the environment. It came about because in 1973, there was an oil embargo where we weren't able to get enough oil for the country. And if people lived during that, you know, there was like crazy inflation and like people lining up the gas stations couldn't get enough Mm -hmm. fuel and that really crippled our economy. So it was actually a way of promoting national security by increasing our fuel efficiency so that we could go further on less oil. Interesting. And so that's, I think, a component we often don't talk about when we talk about climate change is that. Our dependency on fossil fuel is also a national security issue. Like when we have things like hurricanes or we have issues with other countries and we're not able to get in our supply of fossil fuels, it impacts our economy. And if we were able to do that without those things like solar and wind, nobody's going to shut them off. So that's a way for us to have energy independence as a country. And that's something that has impacted actually our uh, efficiency standards, which I thought was really interesting.
0: I'm just really liking looking at this too. And going back to what we talked about in our opener with the hotel companies and having standards. So we have this clean air act in 1970. They have a five-year commitment for a 90% (laughs) reduction in certain emissions. That's what I'm talking about.
1: (laughs) We need to see see some more of that happen. (laughs) Well, and it's treating it like it's an emergency. Like it's treating it and saying people are dying. So clean up your act. And it's possible and you're going to do it. And over time, the auto industry has sometimes worked against, but also worked with the government on setting what realistic fuel standards are. So fuel efficiency standards, I think went up again in 2007 and actually like are progressively getting tighter up until I think 2025. So one of the reasons I was interested in cars for this is one of the common metrics that we hear about measuring something's impact on climate change is this thing is the equivalent of taking this many vehicles off the road. Um, And it led me to ask, like, how many vehicles are on the road? And actually, like, how much does it matter compared to what our our emissions are? So um, in 2019, the Bureau of Travel Statistics said that there were about 276 million registered vehicles on the road in the U.S., Um, there's a lot of different ways you can parse them out. Most of the time when you're looking at cars, they refer to them as light vehicles, so we're not talking about giant trucks, but that registered vehicles number does include things like, um, shipping trucks, each of those cars averages about 4.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. So when you're driving your vehicle. 4.6 metric tons of CO2 per year. And depending on the gas that you have, like if you use diesel, you have better fuel efficiency, but there's more emissions. And then if you have an ethanol mix, which is like, we've been hearing things about biofuels for a very long time, like corn and things like that, that has worse fuel efficiency. So you don't go as far but it has lower emissions per gallon. Yeah. (laughs) That makes
0: my brain hurt just a little bit. And I'm interested in this. So I'm going to have to dig a little deeper myself, I think. But I, because I've heard this before, you know, because some people will come out against, oh, well, it's all of these big trucks that are, you know, these diesel fuels and you see like the... smoke billowing out, you know, from the the tailpipe and all that. And these are, are the people that are terrible for the environment. But I have heard then people come back and say, no, diesel is actually better for the environment. So yeah. I guess it
1: depends on... <laughs> I don't know. The one website, I guess this is through the EPA and maybe I'm simplifying what they're saying too much, but basically they were sort of saying it's a little bit of a wash for both of them. Um, once you actually look at how far the vehicle travels versus how much emissions comes out the tailpipe, interesting. Um, but hopefully all of these things become obsolete, (laughs) Um, but to give you an idea. 29% of our greenhouse gas emissions here in the U S comes from transportation and 58% of that 29% comes from light duty vehicles, AKA cars. And then an additional 24% is from trucks. So in the last episode, we talked a little bit, how, when you fly on a plane, your per person, greenhouse gas emissions are way higher than a car, Mm -hmm. but we use way more cars than we use planes. So, there is significant room for improvement when it comes to to vehicles and how they emit. So not all cars now available are internal combustion engine cars. So, um, those are ones that would be solely powered by gasoline, um, reliant on that particular engine. Basically most of you are probably driving this type of car. And this is the vast majority of cars on the highway. Sarah, what other cars are there? So, well, we have our hybrids, like we've already talked about, right? So that's where
0: Casey and I are at right now is your standard hybrid vehicle. Yeah. Let's talk
1: about what that is. Do you know how they're powered?
0: Only very little. Like I read about this a little when I was going to to buy it. So like I said, they do still have an engine and you'll feel and you'll hear that engine running as quote unquote normal uh, with any internal combustion engine vehicle. But they also basically they're getting energy from the car running sort of. Right. So you have it on here. I, I didn't know this term, but it's it's regenerative braking right? So when the car is stopping, it's basically capturing the energy that would previously have been, or that is lost on internal combustion engine vehicles, right? So you're losing heat and like friction and and all of that. You're losing energy. It is capturing that energy and using that to help power the vehicle. Is that an accurate assessment, Casey, more or less? So it's a a combo.
1: If you you have basic physics, right? Like energy is neither created nor destroyed. Yeah. So when you slow go from really fast to really slow, the energy isn't disappearing, it has to go somewhere. And this is a really ingenious way of capturing that energy and then using it to power electronic parts of the vehicle. Yeah. So what this does in effect is it increases your fuel efficiency. It allows you to travel farther with less gasoline because part of your car is being powered by this regenerative braking. Yeah.
0: And it's fascinating. Again, my car will sort of show me where that energy or when that energy was captured a little bit while you're driving. So it's cool to see this. And this is nice. Again, like we talked about in in the review section, because you are still putting gasoline in, so you're not plugging this car in anywhere. So you don't have those extra things to consider, but those also exist now, so there are plug-in hybrids as well that you can plug in. Again, they have both the regular uh, engine, but you can also plug it in to charge as you would a standard electric vehicle, which does not have that internal uh, combustion engine and you charge, so you you hopefully are starting to see more of these around now, these, you know, charging stations and parking lots at different organizations and things like that. And then, Casey, this last one, uh, these, you're going to have to fill us in on because I'm not super familiar with, but now we also have hydrogen cell vehicles. So can you talk a little bit more about that and anything else I might
1: have missed? <laughs> I... I can talk very little about hydrogen (laughs) cell vehicles. So yeah, electric. So basically anything from plug-in hybrids, electric vehicles, and hydrogen cell vehicles are all considered under sort of the alternative energy vehicles and almost considered their, they are considered their own class of vehicles. So they're considered separate from internal combustion engines. So plug-in hybrids too are considered separate, even though they still have They in, in most of the literature I could find. Yes. And that's because, so one of the drawbacks and things that people fear about electric vehicles is that you can only go as long as your battery lets you like, you know, same Mm -hmm. thing where your phone runs dead. Eventually your car can run dead. Eventually with plug-in hybrids, the vast majority of the trips you are going to make are going to be electric vehicle trips because like 90-something percent of trips that we make in the U.S. are under a certain percent of miles. And so if you're plugging in your plug-in hybrid every night like you normally would, you're almost never going to use very much gas at all. The gas just kicks in once you've exceeded the amount of energy you have in the electric. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Vehicle. So they are I typically, like right. Um, they are typically kind of considered within that electric vehicle class. There's some consideration, like I talked about earlier, how we got taxed for having hybrids. Mm-hmm. Like those are the question marks people have about like, well, how do you consider plugins different or, what's exactly going on here. But the vast majority of trips you're making, if you're using it correctly, now you could use a plug-in hybrid like an internal combustion. Well, I shouldn't say that. You could use it like a regular hybrid because it also has that regenerative braking. So you can still get about the same fuel efficiency as a hybrid, or you can get way better if you're actually plugging it in frequently, but you wouldn't have to plug it in. And that would defeat the purpose, but basically you don't have to. Electric vehicles, no internal combustion engine. Whatsoever. Super quiet. No tailpipe emissions. Um, yeah, which is super exciting. Hydrogen cell vehicles, I don't know that much about. Like <laughs> they're sort of always thrown in there, but I don't know how many are actually out on the road. Yeah. But they have a hydrogen fuel cell that uh, powers them, and their only emissions are warm air and water vapor. The Sarah's brain. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hydrogen future. energy is a thing that I need to learn more about yeah, generally, same. not just for cars. So that's. That's still a mystery box to me, but yeah. Can you imagine if that's the only thing that comes out of your car?
1: But also electric vehicles, it's zero, like it's nothing. So electric vehicles are extremely exciting to me. Uh, when I, a lot of times when you're doing research, I have to like, make this kind of like, well, what's the bright side of everything? Cause bad things are happening, but really like the way that the industry is going is extremely exciting. Electric vehicles are getting better and better. They're becoming more and more accessible and they are increasingly looking like the only future that's going to be available for folks. So pros of electric vehicles, environmentally way better. And that's because you are not using fossil fuels within that internal combustion engine. Now there's of course some drawbacks to that because of how you might actually power them. So Sarah, why might we still have carbon emissions with an electric vehicle? Oh, just in terms of like the production, not just the production, but if you plug it in your wall and mm. you get your power. Oh, from yeah. The of coal, course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have... Yeah.
0: However you're powering your home is then how you're powering your car. Basically. Exactly.
1: Okay. Now, uh, as one article pointed out the way that your regular car gets powered, will never change the fuel that makes your electric car run absolutely can change over the life of the vehicle. So yeah. if you are living in a place that's mostly dominated by fossil fuels, but in the next five years get solar and wind and other renewable energy, all of a sudden the uh, environmental cost of your car goes way, 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 way down. Yeah. So th- there, those are what we would call upstream emissions that we still have to account for, but it's still more efficient generally than having an internal combustion engine. They are cheaper to fuel because it's way cheaper to plug them in. And in most houses, you wouldn't have to have a different outlet, but it would still take a long time to charge. So sometimes you have to invest in like a special type of outlet to increase the amount of power going to your car over a shorter amount of time. And there's, okay, this is the part that I didn't know, but like sold me if I wasn't already sold way less maintenance on electric cars. And that's because think of all of the fuel lines and the oil changes you have Mm. to do. They don't exist. The internal combustion engine isn't there anymore. So they're like, yeah, your general maintenance is going to be like wiper blades and tires. All right. There I'm ready. I'm ready. Think of how much (laughs) less complicated that would be than like how expensive it is to replace so many parts of our current cars. So like that to me was like, oh, I would have almost expected it to be opposite. Not knowing anything about it. Right. But no, it's going to be way cheaper to fix our cars and way easier. And the maintenance is going to be way less. Yeah. Amazing.
0: I I think that's awesome. For me, I mean, the big thing still just feels like the infrastructure, right? We are so set up for fossil fuels. I mean, think about how many gas stations you probably drive by, you know, on your way to work or whatever. And now granted, if you, you know, have an electric vehicle, you, I, I don't know, I don't know how long they run or how often you need to charge, but I'm thinking, okay, so I could get to work and back and my workplace does have charging stations, which is nice. But, you know, what about when I'm driving across the country because I'm afraid of flying, <laughs> you know, that so that feels like the hold up to me is, you know, if I start to get low on gas, you know, in my hybrid vehicle, I know that I'm going to have a place to pull over and get gas. That's my fear. Like that's the anxiety that I have when I think of electric vehicles, which I'm guessing is what most people have as well, is just where if I'm taking a trip, how do I know when and where I'm going to be able to charge this thing? So getting the infrastructure available, it feels like the hardest thing to me.
1: A hundred percent. You have hit on what seems to be the key anxiety with electric vehicles. When they were first, there's a, a documentary on, on Amazon. I would really like to watch that. I just didn't have time to called who killed the electric car. Electric cars were actually first launched in the 1990s. It wasn't Elon Musk who invented the electric car, but they were pretty quickly killed. I'm guessing it was the fossil fuel industry that killed them. <laughs> they that would they be my, would guess. Be my number one, <laughs> Yes. The prime suspect. Number one, they're very good at killing lots of things, (laughs) but yes, like that. And especially at that time, really like the range of the vehicle was very, very short, maybe like 20 to 30 miles as battery life, like really battery storage is going to be an extremely essential part of our future. Um, think about solar panels and things like that. Alternative means of energy needs some sort of storage unit because we won't be able to like, when this Sun goes down at night. You have to have enough storage versus like I burn coal all day, all night. Like you can th- continue to do that. This is, this is a, something that's going to impact us a lot. And it's the same thing for electric vehicles as well. Now that battery life, the way it's been described to me is, you know, like how a computer chip, like all of a sudden we would go from like, oh, this is the computer, the size of a room. Right. To 30 years later being like the size of an eyelash and it holds 20 times more. It's not gonna work that same way where it's like an exponential growth. It's a lot of little things that need tinkering in order to make things better, but we have seen them come a long way. And companies like Tesla have done a lot of exploring and innovation on this. And they are hoping in the next like five years that we're gonna start seeing electric vehicles that have more like a 200, 300, even 600 mile run. But like you said, like we have gas stations everywhere where are we going to plug these guys in? It's, uh, it's and complicated for, and for
0: how long, too, yes. right? So if I'm on a road trip, you know, even if I can go 200 miles, great, but then am I going to need to stop every 200 miles and charge it overnight?
1: Right. It seems like, um, when you have like special adapters, if you can draw a certain amount of energy and ideally these charging stations would obviously have like the max amount of energy. Like it would more take like two to three hours to fully charge your car battery, according to some of the websites that I looked at. But this is one of those things where electric vehicles will most likely be adopted first on the coasts and in cities, because we're going to be taking much shorter trips and we will have much more infrastructure that allows us to like, you know, you have charging stations in your city versus like one charging station in your county, but your county is half the size of Nevada. Like that's not going to be as useful to you. There's also some, some people will tell you that electric vehicles aren't that great. They have their own emissions, which they do a huge part of the carbon impact of the car actually has to do with manufacturing battery and 50% of the carbon emissions are generally associated with that, that battery. It depends on where the battery was manufactured in the U S our carbon emissions on the battery can be anywhere from like 50 to 80% less than a battery that was manufactured in Asia, which is where most of the batteries are being manufactured, but again, that's another innovation that the better that we get at it, the less that will be. And according to one study, a new Nissan leaf, which is one of the most popular electric cars out there basically pays back its carbon footprint within two years versus it. But basically if you compare that to driving a regular vehicle within two years, the carbon footprint is lower on the, yeah. the leaf than it is on, in the UK, because the UK's power grid's actually gotten much, much, much better, but yeah, the infrastructure, we'll talk a little bit more about that because that is something that is actually part of current government plans. We are projecting mm-hmm. for that future right now. About 2% of cars being sold in the U S are electric. That's very small, obviously. Sir, do you know anybody with an electric car? I,
0: I do not know anybody that drives a solely electric vehicle, no. I don't either. Got a, a lot of hybrid folks now, but nobody with an electric vehicle.
1: I was just talking to my dad. With the small business that we have, we have purchased vehicles. They've mostly been in like, crap, the last vehicle broke. Now we have to get a new one immediately. And so we really haven't had a chance to like really shop around and plan. And with a lot of the supply chain issues, you're like, I need one. And they're like, cool, you can have this particular one in six months. So you don't have as much flexibility, but there's a lot more makes and models of electric cars coming out. And we're hoping that the next vehicle that we can actually plan out would be like an electric pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Is super, super exciting. And the U S is way behind in Europe. About 10% of cars um, being sold today are electric and in China, about 5.7% of cars are electric. So we got some catching up to do. We do now. part of that. I mean, like think about Europe. That is a much more congested area. It is easier to have infrastructure that um, supports cars that don't have to go quite as mm-hmm. far. Um, Places like the American West, we probably won't see electric vehicle adoption in the same way until those batteries get way, way better, just because it it takes so much longer. Uh, So looking at things, most predictions say that electric vehicles are inevitably the future. Um, And part of that is because government mandate is going to make it so that that's what happens. (laughs) Um, And that's because a lot of these governments are trying to meet our greenhouse gas emissions Projections. Mm-hmm. Again, 29% of our greenhouse gas emissions are transportation. This is a really good way to cut down a lot of those greenhouse gas emissions. Globally, 15 countries have committed to zero emissions vehicles. And like it ranges across a couple. So some of them are like by 2050, which again is one of those like standards that's 30 years away that yeah. it seems like almost not a goal. It seems like a <laughs> Yeah, we bet that that's all that's going to be available, but that they're telegraphing. This is a good sign to companies that this is a viable market for them to go into these countries include China, Japan, the UK, South Korea, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and in Norway, like most of the vehicles now are, um, electric Slovenia, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Canada, 12 us States, Sri Lanka, Cabo Verde and Costa Rica. Uh, One of the most notable commitments here in the U.S. is the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, will ban new sales of new gas-powered cars in California by 2035. It won't be illegal to own a car that's gas-powered, and it won't be illegal to sell your old one. But if you're selling a new vehicle, you have to. And that is going to reduce the state's greenhouse gas emissions by 35% and reduce the smog causing pollutants by 80%. So that's a pretty, yeah, it's a really great way for us to, to go. Sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say it, and it might feel sort of aggressive to some people and listening. You might feel like, like, man, like that's, but I almost feel like, you know, going back to what we talked about with the, the, the clean air act, like, it, it almost feels like that's just the push we need to get there. It's like, we we have yeah. this stuff now and it feels hard. Like, it feels hard to me. I'm like, really? Like, no, no gas yes, power. But that's just because that's what we've been used to our whole lives, yes. right? And, you know, I mean, there was a time when gas powered vehicles would have been infathomable to people. And now we're like electric vehicles. Like, it just doesn't <laughs> feel like it should work. And so we do just kind of, I feel like need that push to get there. And and so I'm glad to see it starting to happen because I, I would, yeah, I anticipate that this, this is where we're going. And so let's just, let's just do it. Like, let's just make the jump and make some progress here. So I, as much as even like me hearing it, it makes me nervous. I'm also like, yeah, like let's, let's do it. It's going to happen. So let's just do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think things to keep in mind is one gas is already very much subsidized in the U S so like we have created the future that we exist or created the present we exist in currently in not a like non-artificial way. This isn't just like hell the markets worked out. Like, again, I'm pretty sure the fossil fuel industry killed the electric car the first time. (laughs) Like there is lobbying has put us where we're at right now. And what these States are doing is they're saying, we know this is the future. We know this is how we're going to commit to a better climate future. But it also, I think, acknowledges that we, we need to have a certain capacity of our, our citizenry using yeah. electric vehicles to justify the amount of infrastructure needed to put in place. Like think of you're just voluntarily taking a electric vehicle. If you only have 5% of the population being on electric vehicles, they inherently are not going to have charging stations everywhere because it doesn't make sense to invest taxpayer exactly. dollars. Yeah into the infrastructure to support them. And then you're going to have lots of people complaining, like, why, why would I pay for an electric vehicle thing? Well, now if we all need them, then we're all paying for electric vehicles. And we're not paying for gas. Don't forget that. We're not paying right. for gas anymore, which is so exciting. And like gas, another thing that's completely out of our control about how much it costs. Like, mm-hmm. it's hard to budget for because some days it's cheap, some days it's not. Um, So this is important. President Biden would also like, Uh, His target's a little bit less aggressive. He would like 50% of new vehicles in the U.S. to be electric vehicles by 2030. That's still a pretty good goal. Yeah. Congress, they have introduced in the Senate the Zero Emissions Vehicle Act of 2020, and that bill would require 50% of all new passenger vehicles sold by 2025 to be zero emissions vehicles. And I think that includes the plug-in hybrids. And then this requirement would ramp up 5% each year to 100% of new vehicles by 2035. So it's actually more ambitious than the California goal. Yeah, wow. So they're trying to come at it from a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing. I was not familiar with all of this potential future legislation. So that's exciting
1: to hear about. It's coming quick. Some car companies have also committed to only producing electric vehicles by a certain amount. A lot more like European car companies, because so much of Europe has committed to that, they're basically going to be making electric vehicles in all makes and models. So don't envision yourself married to a Prius and all of us will be like (laughs) all driving (laughs) driving the same. Yeah. This is not this dystopian future. We could, we'll probably have the same number of different types of, you know, colors and and shapes and sizes and functions. I can't wait.
0: I can't wait to see what the new ones are, which actually that is, is the thought that I had, which is, sort of random where but when you you mentioned the thinking that the plug-in hybrids were included under this legislature do you know of any like I I can't even bring to mind a plug-in hybrid I didn't know they
1: existed before researching this episode yeah (laughs) I just found that within and I was like oh this seems to solve a lot of yeah like uh, anxiety, sorry, Yeah, it over, feels like yes. a good
0: transition uh, right. into a fully poly- electric vehicle. So I'm, I'm interested. I, I, wonder if that just means that they are very high end and, and very few of them right now. But
1: that's an excellent transition, Sarah, um, because one of the big barriers to electric vehicles, other than the fact that we have range anxiety, is that they are expensive right now. Like they are significantly more expensive than an average vehicle. Now you don't have to buy a Tesla in order, like that. We're not talking about that price point. Now Tesla has some good things about it. They have pretty clean batteries that are being made now in a factory run by solar panels. Like it's a pretty energy efficient, uh, a car, but the like things like the Nissan Leaf are actually much closer. And a lot of governments are giving subsidies for buying electric vehicles because it is the right thing to do, right? It is mm-hmm. the fu- the way of the future. We want more people to adapt them. One of the things that I saw is that gasoline, according to Coltura, which is like a end gasoline consumption place, but I don't think that they have a reason to be very skewed on the statistics. Basically the top 10% of gasoline consumers consume 32% of the gasoline. So we don't all use gasoline evenly. There are certain people who use it a lot more. These drivers tend to drive trucks and SUVs, which are higher consuming vehicles. They also tend to live in rural areas, which makes sense because they have to drive yeah, farther driving, distances. Yeah. They also tend to be lower income and spend up to 8% of their income on gas. Mm. Jeez. That's crazy to me. So current flat fee incentives mostly help affluent consumers. So if you're like someone who... Has enough money for a new car in the first place, and then you get the five to seven thousand dollars as a tax rebate or something like that. It it will help you buy a new electric vehicle, but the average consumer is not necessarily trying to buy a new vehicle in the first place. And so, electric vehicles right now are really sort of just available to people who can afford a certain level of car. So, um, targeting super users with specific Uh, incentives for them to switch over to at least things like plug-in hybrids could be a really effective way to cut down our greenhouse gas emissions. If that is our real goal, if our goal isn't just like change the whole fleet, if it's really like targeting who is emitting the most, it would be looking at those people and trying to give them higher incentives to switch over to a different type of vehicle. This is something you're talking about, like having some anxiety basically about Transitioning into a future that looks different than the way we grew up, right? Yeah. I had the exact same thoughts because I was like, did the people who used horse and buggies be like, but now I won't have a horse and buggy. And I don't know, if, like, even though it's uh-huh. much more practical than feeding a horse. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not just electric vehicles that are going to change. It's not just like stopping to plug in our vehicles. There's a lot of other innovation happening in cars right now.
0: Yeah, I know where you're going with this. And this does freak me out
1: self driving cars I don't like it i don't <laughs> don't like it i'm not all about it Anyone who knows me knows that I have a pretty like skeptical stance on robots and that's putting it pretty generously. (laughs) Like I appreciate a lot of the things they can do for us, but partially like giving them artificial intelligence is a pretty terrifying prospect, partially because we treat them so badly to begin with, (laughs) but self-driving cars are likely in our future. And they already technically are part of our future in that there's a, or in our present, there's a spectrum of self-driving. So a lot of us have cars that have elements of AI things that are like yep. lane assistance yep. to help correct you, to help you distance, like beep at you. If, if you're going mm-hmm. too close to a car, I, I'm very cool with that.
0: I, yeah, my has the like brake assist or whatever. Yeah. And the cruise control now that throws me off. Cause it's not real. Like it doesn't keep you at the same speed. It'll adjust based on the car in front of you, which is sometimes great and sometimes not in my opinion, but yeah, yeah. And it does have the lane departure alert and and all of that. Yeah. I do like those you're right. So if I can think of it as a continuum of that, maybe I'll get more comfortable with it, but a fully self-driving vehicle Just, I, I like one of the reasons that I like driving and prefer it to flying is that I feel like I'm more in control. Like I feel like in in a plane, I can't control anything and I'm just up here far, far higher than humans were meant to be. And I can't do anything about it. So I like the control. And so self-driving vehicles is, is hard, but that's a good point that some of this technology that we're already using.
1: I mean, yes, that helped me ease my fears a little bit. I am still extremely nervous. Mm -hmm. Just about it, um, especially honestly with like how many ransomware attacks we've had on the Mm U S like the idea of somebody remotely controlling my vehicle. Terrifying, honestly, the robots doing it themselves, maybe not as scary because if you look at it statistically, Sarah's like, no, I'm not totally terrifying for me. No, I don't, yeah, it it is
0: (laughs) more terrifying to me than the idea of an outside attack is just the robots themselves.
1: I, okay. sometimes I'm driving and I'm like, this shouldn't be possible. We are relying on so many human beings individually making good decisions while careening down roads in four wheel death machines that like, I don't know how it works so well, (laughs) let alone like, you know, we do get into accidents. I, I think it would be great great you know for driver safety if we got ai to the point where it was making better decisions and honestly the idea of someone who's intoxicated mm-hmm. getting into a car that will just drive them home that like wouldn't let them drive because they are not in the right mind to to drive like that eliminating drunk driving seems like one of the best things about self driving cars other things like not having a completely pointless commute for Andrew who's driving 2 plus hours every single day to work having that time potentially be more meaningful than sitting in traffic and less dangerous i i'm open to it it still terrifies me but i'm open to it but the reason why this is part of our conversation is because a study in 2017 predicted because of self-driving cars that private car ownership in the US would drop 80% I call bull. I don't think that's going to happen. What do you think, Sarah?
0: Well, I mean, is there a timeline for that? Cause I,
1: Oh, it... so sorry. By 2030.
0: Oh, heck no. By 2030. <laughs> <they> want... no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like,
1: <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> definitely not. But I could, I mean, I could, but that's, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about the, the idea of self-driving cars, if, if that were to become a thing, I would much prefer to take up some other form of, you know, I mean, we train
1: service, we talked about needs to, to be better. Are you saying if cars become self-driving that you're not going to be in any cars anymore? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> that's not the point of the study. But
0: I really do think that it would change the game fully. Yeah. And so no, 80% by 2030, heck no.
1: Basically the idea that they had was with self-driving cars, instead of having one that you own yourself, you could order it almost like an Uber, except for mm-hmm. it drives to you from an empty parking lot full of cars. Yes, you know I, I'm not all about that either. E- there's some some issues with it now. In certain areas, they've done studies like Uber and Lyft have found that people are replacing their cars less in some of these areas where these services are widely available, because instead of owning a car in New York City, if The train taxis and Uber covers all your transportation needs, then there's no need for a car. And so in some of these highly urban areas, we might see car ownership fall. And that is going to make a difference regardless of electric vehicles or not, because anytime you make a vehicle, it has a carbon cost to it. Um, And something that we haven't really talked about is that we don't really have a good way to recycle electric car batteries yet. So that's something that is another form of cost, that if all of us have a personal vehicle, it is something we have to think about as far as the environmental cost, even if there's not tailpipe emissions. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2018, the UN showed that 55% of the world's population would live, uh, that lived in urban areas. But by 2050, that would go up to 68%. And things again, like electric cars and self-driving vehicles are going to be more useful if everybody's living in a tighter space. And it would be nice to be able to get rid of a lot of parking lots and replace them with actual like useless or useful things. Because right now, 90 to 95% of the time, our personal vehicles are parked. We're not in them. So they're not really doing much for us. Something big has happened since this 2017 study, though, and that's the pandemic. (laughs) I don't know about you, Sarah, but during the pandemic, I, my car was my only way to, to do anything. Like I wasn't getting on a bus with a bunch Mm -hmm. of people. I was actually going out to like state parks and things like that, more trying to get out of the city in the urban area where we lived because the pandemic was all around us. Did you feel like during the pandemic you relied more or less on your car? I guess you worked it's from home interesting. more. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I I would definitely r- relied less. It's funny, I bought my Prius right before the pandemic, like literally days before everything shut down because I was in an accident I had no choice and so we're down I mean like I had my little hand sanitizer with me at the the car place and all of that and it was really funny because then once we shut down and you know we work from home and I I, for a couple months anyway and I'm such a homebody I I mean
1: I like I was like
0: I'm never gonna drive drive this car and with it being a hybrid I was like I'm never buying gasoline again I can to live on this <laughs> the next one 20 years <laughs> <laughs> forever um no so I yeah I mean really there there was one point where I just took my dog out for a drive because I was like I just Could this battery die if I just (laughs) sit in here in in my car and it doesn't ever get driven? So I'm definitely one that relied less on it. So that's interesting to me that for some people it became
1: more of a thing. Well, there were less cars on the road too. It was a very strange mentally like time, obviously, but, um, but as far as cars go, there was a study published in nature that showed, even though people, under often underestimate how much it costs to own a car. Like if you're like, well, I pay this much a a year. You probably are underestimating that cost by up to 58% because people don't think about things like oil changes and general repair and maintenance, and actually the amount of gas that they, they buy and things like that. So people often underestimate. And so some scientists were framing it like- why do people make this irrational decision to have their personal vehicles? And I feel like the person who wrote this 2017 <laughs> study being like, people don't need cars. They're going to all ditch their cars by 2030. I feel like that's kind of what their thought was. I, cause I think that they really genuinely underestimated how much we value as Americans value private vehicle ownership. Yeah. And they found in this study in nature that even though people underestimate the cost of their vehicle, they frequently valued like the actual, they they put a dollar amount on the value of owning your own vehicle and it exceeded the actual costs of owning the vehicle. So even, even when they were underestimating them, Still, the actual costs people still value would rather like they did basically like would you rather lose ten thousand dollars or lose your car? Yeah, and like they found that people value having vehicles anywhere from like twelve to sixteen thousand dollars a year, basically. And it's the choice to drive whenever you want.
0: Yeah, I one hundred percent believe that. Regardless of you know the the change for me during the pandemic was. The opposite. But yeah, generally speaking, I, because even, you know, when I was in the accident and I had that week or whatever, probably wasn't even a week uh, that I had to go. I probably just had a couple of days that I had to go without a car and I, before I got a rental car or whatever, but yeah, it's, it feels paralyzing. You know, yeah. if you don't live in a very, very walkable area, you know, it, it feels paralyzing to, to not have a vehicle. So I believe
1: that for sure. And they found that in the study that this, the, the value people put on personal ownership did increase significantly during the pandemic. They found people who live in urban areas or people who both relied on their car and other forms of transportation. So like if you had a car, but you also used the subway, you'd be more willing to give up your car, yeah, which makes a sense. lot of, yeah lot of sense. Um, I think it's also a good time to like call into our privilege of the fact that we do have personal vehicles Mm -hmm. and not having reliable transportation is an extremely real barrier to being able to have your own job and be able to afford to live in particular places. And, and so we really can't discount people's emotional attachment to their vehicles and how any changes that we make to this is going to be a cultural shift that is going to have an emotional impact on people. And we should be able to speak to that with some sort of empathy when we're making these changes, which are very real and very necessary. Um, Again, we didn't get to a point like it is not necessarily commonplace everywhere else for every individual person to own a, their own personal vehicle. Um, we came to this point, we need to maybe get away from it, but it, it's going to be a process and, uh, and it's going to be one that impacts our environment, but also our society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is fascinating, Casey. And Did you I'm, learn things? <laughs> I learned things. I want an electric vehicle. Uh, but not for many years until, you know, I want to get all the worth that I can get out of my current vehicle, but yeah, this did, it, it did get me excited. It, it, it's just, it's going to be the Jetsons. We're going to have our lots of different types of electric vehicles,
1: less flying,
0: probably (laughs) going to have self-driving vehicles though. And then we'll have our in-home recycling systems and the, the, the future
1: is coming. I love it. Well, stick around guys. We're going to talk about what you can do today to, uh, reduce your emissions in your car. Welcome back to the challenge portion of the episode. So every week we try and, and talk about a topic, but then give you something real tangible that you can do to change your life a little bit, become a little more greener in respect to this. So, uh, the average life expectancy of a car in the U S is about 12 years. Um, we are not telling you to ditch your car today and go buy an electric vehicle. However, if you have a standard vehicle. It's a very like iffy estimate, but basically if you have a standard internal combustion engine vehicle and you replace that car today with a Nissan Leaf, this is not an ad for Nissan Leaf. This is just for the articles <laughs> for comparing sponsored. it to not sponsored, although hey Nissan. <laughs> um, it would actually reduce your, this is, this is one of the few products that I'm not going to tell you to use till the very end of its lifespan forever and ever because that's the actual good portion of it. Most products, like once you buy them, the significant part of their carbon emissions are over because it was in the creation of that product, not actually in the use. For cars, a significant portion of its carbon emissions are within the use of the vehicle. If you were to replace your vehicle today with a new Nissan Leaf and your vehicle was like with current industry standards, but a regular internal combustion engine vehicle, the Nissan Leaf would start having a impact after about four years. So after four years, at least in the UK, cause it depends on, you know, if you're here in the U S and you get a bunch of your power from solar energy, it might be faster. If you get a bunch from coal, it's going to be slower, but it's about four years. Um, so it, it's not a zero sum game. It's not saying that like you shouldn't replace your vehicle ever. You should use it till it's dying. If you like own a Hummer, like <laughs> you replace it with something more eco-friendly; it actually can have an impact. But you don't have to replace a vehicle for today's challenge, right?
0: Because there's also financial
1: implications and all of that there. So, a hundred percent, yeah. Not even to speak to that. Cor- correct, yeah. Um, but there I, are. Things- I guess. What I'm, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say. I guess what I'm saying is, compared to other challenges, where it's like just don't buy anything new, right? Like buying something yeah. new actually could make a difference, Yeah, but was, you can do that if you want, but, yeah. um, but I'm not doing it. Cause I just paid off my <laughs> car last month. So I'm <laughs> driving mine till it's gone because I have a hybrid. So one of the things Sarah talked about is like that acceleration factor. There are certain ways that we drive our car that make it more or less, uh, fuel efficient. So for example, in 1973 with fuel, the, the oil embargo one of the things Congress did in response to this that I just found out from NPR is there was a national speed limit of 55 miles per hour. Yeah. I've never heard about that. I didn't either. Hey, what up seventies? Yeah. And that's because over 50 miles per hour driving your, uh, your fuel efficiency goes down significantly. So if you're thinking green, you don't need to speed around everywhere. Like obviously be safe, follow the speed limit, but the the faster you go over 50 to 55 miles per hour, you're actually losing fuel efficiency, which doesn't always feel that way when I'm on the highway, but that's the facts.
0: Interestingly, not to lengthen this anymore, but I do notice that in the Prius, maybe even more than I did. Like, I feel like there's a sharper drop. I think just because of how fuel efficient it is when I am doing city driving, I do definitely notice that fuel efficiency reduction on the highway.
1: Okay. Not to promote the Prius more, but yeah, like you get to see real time where your miles per gallon is. And then at the end of your trip, it tells you when you turn the car off, it's like, congrats, you had this many. And you're like, I can
0: I live for compliments from the (laughs) (laughs) Prius. Anyway,
1: um, so uh, uh, with the Prius, we do get regenerative braking, but hard stops and hard acceleration, um, decreases your efficiency up to 15 to 30% guys. So, you know, don't have that road rage accelerate gently, brake gently and that will actually save you a bunch of money at the gas station. So, um that's a great way to do it. Avoid idling, so skip the drive-through, walk into McDonald's if they've got the open spot or now they have like those you like pay and then you park and yeah. car off when you park when they deliver the McDonald's or whatever to your vehicle. Um or like my mom loves to sit in the car when she gets home and I don't understand it, but she likes sits in that, that vehicle for forever, turn the car off. And then I'll remind you when it's getting too hot in there that you should go to your house, <laughs> right, right next door. Also keeping your car in good shape, using the recommended grade of motor oil and keeping your tires inflated are a really good way to do it. Uh, if you have, like, if you're someone who really likes camping and you put stuff on top of your car, like one of those hard turtle shells. That decreases your fuel efficiency a lot, but because of all the drag, they now have things that strap onto the back of your car. So try that instead, uh, that reduces your fuel efficiency by like one to 2% versus like 25% Wow, for the, the top hard turtle. Yeah. So it's like I a significant know. difference. So if you're going camping or taking your kid to college, because that's why we got one of those things, that's something to think about strapping one to the back instead. And using these practices, you're going to save money. You're going to reduce emissions related to your car and make the world a better place. So be a responsible driver. Don't get road rage. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. This was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. I'm excited about the future of cars, and those are also great tips for what we can do right now, regardless of what type of vehicle you drive. So let us know if you drive an electric vehicle. Tell us what that experience is like for you. just <laughs> uh, show us pictures so that we can dream about the cool new electric cars we're gonna have in the future. Um, If you do participate in any of these take-home actions, if you're completing any take-home actions from previous episodes, let us know about that as well. We love to hear from you. You can find us in a number of different places. We're on Facebook. You can look up A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at a little greener pod, and you can send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com for any of those things, for suggestions, for feedback, any of that. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, if you're enjoying listening to us, we also really appreciate it. If you give us a share on social media, tell other people in your circle about us, you can also rate and review on whatever platform you're listening to us on, because that helps more people to find us as well. So thanks for your support, everyone. And thanks for listening. And Casey, thanks again for the discussion tonight.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week and stay safe.